Second Samuel chapter 23. It's uh, the second part, just moving on from last week, uh, but a different title this morning. That is, Where Are God's Mighty Men? Where Are God's Mighty Men? And it could also be, Where Are God's Mighty Women? Praise the Lord. Where Are God's Mighty Men? Or Where Are God's Mighty Women? Amen. Second Samuel chapter 23 and verse 8. Just remember just the announcements for the week again. Remember, you're keeping your prayers even if you're not there. Just on Monday night, the Bible class, we've been really blessed as we've come around God's Word. And just again, we're continuing on tomorrow night. And just really pray that the Lord would come and meet with those that are gathered there. They're hungry for the Lord and they want an encounter with Him. And we know we can't generate or work anything up. We'd never seek to do that. But we do pray that God would meet with us on Monday night, and all would be filled with God and filled with the Holy Ghost. And just remember again, Wednesday, as we come uh, to seek the Lord, and Friday night, again, that midnight prayer meeting from 11 to 12, so important that we continue in prayer. Amen. Second Samuel 23, verse 8. If you have your Bibles open there, if you'd stand with me, I'll read these few verses with you. Where are God's mighty men? Where are God's mighty men? 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite, that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Adino the Esnite. He lift up a spear against eight hundred whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were there, gathered together to battle. And the men of Israel were gone away. He arose. And he smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand cleave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Harite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, where was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines, but he stood in the midst of the ground, and defended it, and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. Father, this morning we just again ask for your help, Lord, your Spirit to come, to breathe on your Word, to touch our hearts, give us ears, give us sight this morning, Lord, give us hearts, and give us wills that we're willing to bend to your will and your purpose. For your glory alone, we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's take our seats together. Last week, we, uh, we found a gathering of God's people in a very unusual place. I believe it was the assembly. The assembly of God's people was in a very unusual place. It was in a cave called Adullam. And if I could ask you to pay attention just for about 10 or 15 minutes I believe it's important to lay uh, this very important foundation for us as we just come to what the Lord has to say, just so that you understand the work and the dealings of the Lord. I believe this is a very important message this morning. I believe every message is important, no matter who is preaching, but I know on my own heart that God has been pressing uh, this message. I believe it's a message for us as a people, individuals, as a church this morning, that God wants to move us move his people. And uh, we read last week and we looked at these uh, people, God's people, that found themselves in a very unusual place. It was called the Cave Adullam. 
And we know that the makeup of the people, the Bible told us last week that they were about 400 that were distressed and they were in debt. There was the creditor was after them. We know that's a type of the enemy coming, pursuing after them. And they were discontent. There was about 400 that gathered into this cave unto David. Believe that David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're looking at this morning. The gathering of the people of God are unto him. And I'll share this as we go through. But any other gathering, no matter uh, what it's for, for what purpose, but if Christ is not the head of that gathering, then that gathering is merely a cult. And it will become cultish and it will be deceived. Even within the church of Jesus Christ, there are so many things that are gathering with a name at the top of it. But if it's not the name of Jesus, no matter even if there's elements of truth in that, if there is not Jesus at the head, then it will become a cult and it will be open to the seducing spirits of this day. I want to stress that because there are so many gatherings today uh, within the broader aspect of the church, and they take elements of truth and say, we'll gather around this doctrine, we'll gather around this particular thing that we're after. But if it's not Christ, brothers and sisters, then it will be open to seducing spirits. That's really important. It's remarkable that those that gathered in that place were a people that actually wanted to live for God. You know, they really wanted, they were out for God, they wanted to live for God, and and it's important to note this morning that when you set yourself to want to live for God, that it's often those that desire to walk with Him and go after Him are the ones that experience the fiery trials, the deep trials, the valleys, the mountains, the caves, and everything that goes with that. The Bible tells us of the people of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I don't want you to turn there, but I'll just go through this to build this. But there was a people with cruel mockings and scourgings. They're recorded in the great hallway of faith. And it says of them, they were in bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. Uh, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute. They were afflicted. They were tormented, of whom this world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens, and even in the very caves of the earth. And these are the people of faith. These are the people that were after God, that were experiencing all these great trials and tribulations because they were after God. They were in God's will. They weren't out of God's will. They had a desire for the Lord. But God is still God even in the cave. God is still God even in the desert. God is still God no matter what is happening all around us. Though the world be moved and this world is breaking up rapidly and there's wars and rumors of wars and the imminent return of Christ is upon us. That makes us to live right and it also makes us to put an urgency in our heart for the souls of men and women. God is still God, but the plan of God's unfolding, even, even when you're in the cave, even when you're in the fiercest of trial, God's plan is unfolding. God's purpose had been announced that God, by the word of the prophet, would perform a miracle in bringing forth a shepherd boy to be the king. It may not look at times that God's word is being fulfilled or the heart or the vision or the promise that God has given through his word. It may look as though it seems impossible. 
But the great problem that's come to the church today is that the church no longer believes that we serve a God of the impossible. We've come to agree with the powers of darkness in the world. Now we will believe for the possible. But when the church starts to pray and believe and walk in faith for the impossible, then that's when God really begins to move. The plan of God always requires, I want you to listen carefully, always requires, God's plan always requires participants. God's plan requires people to be a participant in His work. Thank God for that, that God, He doesn't need us, but God, God requires of us to be a participant in the plan and in the purpose of God. And I know that there are many that talk about the plan of God, but it's more than just knowing God's plan. Are you a participant in the plan of God? That takes faith. It takes obedience. It takes courage. It takes sacrifice. It takes a love and a passion for Jesus that will move us into the place to believe the Lord. You know, Esther... And Esther 4 had a choice. There was a great plan that God had, a plan of deliverance for God's people, the Jews. And there was a great plan of the enemy to bring destruction upon them. You remember the words of the old man Mordecai. He said to her, For if thou shalt altogether hold your peace at this time, this is what God said through him, there shall enlargement and deliverance arise from the Jews from another place. My plan will be accomplished. My plan will be done, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth why thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? She had a choice to be a participant in the plan of God. God requires and asks and calls people to be a participant in his great plan. God has a great plan. God wants everyone in this room to be part of that plan. The will the Word and the way. God's will, the purpose of God, the Word of God is Christ. And the way this is all possible is by the Holy Ghost. It's so simple, but it's so profound. God's purpose to the glory of Christ by the power of the Holy Ghost. And yet in all of that, He says, will you be a participant in what I'm about to do? His Word shall not, the Bible says, His Word that goeth forth from His mouth it shall not return unto him void. The Bible says it shall accomplish. That word means to advance, to bring forth, to fulfill, to finish, to complete that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing wherein I have sent it to do. God's word will be fulfilled. Regardless of what men and the kingdoms of men and the powers of darkness and the Antichrist and everything else, regardless of what they do, God's word shall be fulfilled. God's saying, have I a participant? Have I a people that are willing to be part of my great plan? You know, in our reading, 2 Samuel 23, the backdrop of this is the fall of the house of Saul. Oh, how the mighty has fallen. That's what David said when he heard that Saul had gone the way that was suspected he would go as he departed away from the way of the Lord. Oh, how the mighty... David said, have fallen. Saul's house, even though it has evolved and is maybe called in different names today, but Saul's house will always fall. It will always fall. You see, in that whole time that Saul was raised up and anointed to be king, 
He never sought the Ark of the Covenant. He never sought to bring that Ark back in amongst the people. Never sought the presence of the Lord. That's what that means. He never sought that Christ would be the center of everything. He was occupied and preoccupied with many other things, but never sought that He would bring that ark to be at the center of everything. Friends, this morning that is a warning to so much today of where we are. Now we can be busy with so much, but if He is not the center and He is not the first, then the house then will eventually fall. And this is the backdrop of this great Scripture that we're reading of these mighty men. If you turn over to 1 Chronicles, which also records these events, uh, Samuel would have more detail for us, but just God was desiring to move these people from the cave, those that were distressed, those that were discontent, those that were in debt. He was going to move them, not because they were great, but because of the Word of God, because of God's purpose. In 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and verse 1, it says these words, Then, this is just after the fall of the house of Saul, and there had been a great war between the house of David and the house of Saul. But then it says in 1 Chronicles 11, can I just mention something on the way through? You know, that great warfare between the two houses, the house of Saul and the house of David. Saul we look at so many times as a type of the flesh and so forth, who would not wholly follow after the Lord in obedience and eventually the fall of his house. But you know, we need to know in the days in which we are living that when men depart from the faith, that's what the Bible tells us will happen, to be an apostasy. What actually will happen will be very much like Saul. There will be a, a rise in the spiritual activity that they will seek, as Saul did, to find the voice of the Spirit, but it will not be the Holy Spirit. What will actually happen is that, the, that that house will be overtaken by the spirit of this age. Saul went to a witch. There will be witchcraft in the church that it will be moved by the emotions. It will be moved by the spirit of this age. It's so dangerous, but it's, it's true. And there's a warfare that's happening today between two houses. And there's a rise, it seems, of though in the outward that the house of Saul is strong and big and well-numbered and well but I want to tell you, friends, there's a spirit of this age that's sweeping across this world. Many are being deceived. Why? Because Christ is not the reason of their gathering. He's not the head. In 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 1, then God is going to move a remnant of God's people from the cave, from a place of discontentment, distress, and death. But God wants to move you. Can I ask you a question? Are you willing to be moved? Are you actually willing to be moved? Not physically, but most of all, are you willing to be moved in your spirit, in your heart, in your walk with the Lord? Are you willing, God, to move you this morning? 1 Chronicles 11 and 1, it says, Then all Israel gathered themselves together. There is an assembly to David. Again, he is a type of Christ. To David, unto Hebron, or Hebron. I call it Hebron. Nicky says it's Hebron. Nicky's right, by the way. It is Hebron, but if you don't mind this morning, I've always said it Hebron, and I just can't get out of the way of saying it. That's just the bottom line. But if I say it both ways, then you'll know what I'm talking about. It's the same place. And so they're brought to this place, Hebron, saying, Behold, 
We are thy bone and thy flesh. The entire environment was about to change. The atmosphere was going to change. You know, when you walk into a room where there's discontentment, distress, and people in debt, I think everyone would be able to sense the atmosphere, especially if there's 400 of them. But God was about to change the entire atmosphere from that cave and bring them into a completely new place. That place was called Hebron. Hebron in the original or in the Strongs, if you look it up, you'll find it for yourself. It means the seat of association. The root word means a place of fellowship, a couple together. It's like a married couple. When God brings us together, there was a a sense of union and fellowship that God would bring them into. In verse 2 it says, And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, thou shalt be ruler over my people Verse 3, Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king to Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and the anointed king, David, king over Israel. This is what it says, and this is important. It says, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. What you see here is a warfare that has taken place, but I bring you back to the word of the Lord by the prophet Samuel that God would perform his word regardless of what the house of Saul would do. God would move by his spirit and bring about his word and fulfill it. You remember he stands in the living room, if you like, of Jesse, and there's young David, and there's the oil being poured upon his head and he's anointed to be king and the spirit of the Lord has come upon him. And now the Bible says that everything is being done, not according to the flesh or not according to our desires, but everything is being done according to the word of the Lord by the prophet Samuel. God will fulfill his word. And here we see that this man David is now raised up to be king. Remember, he's a type of Christ. I want to talk a little bit for a moment about this place called Hebron, this place of importance in, the, in this message that I want you to see something. Hebron was a critical place for Israel. It is even today. Uh, there is the burial site of the patriarchs and the matriarchs in Hebron today. And you can go and you can visit their graves, Abraham and, and Sarah and so forth. They are buried actually in that place. Abraham from the Bible. Sarah from the Bible, they're actually buried in that place today in a cave. But this is a significant place that God was moving them from. Back in Genesis chapter 13, if you turn over to it, I want to show you a few things about Hebron where God was bringing His people. And in type, I believe that God is speaking to us as a people that He wants to move us into something where we haven't been before. In Genesis chapter 13 and verse 18, we read here that Abram removed his tent, and this is when he left, and he went down and followed the Lord and was obedient to the call of God. He came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is Hebron, and this is the first place as he enters in to the land of Canaan that was promised to him and to God's people. Here is the first place that he raises up an altar unto the Lord. This is the place where he makes a sacrifice and he begins to call in the Lord. He hadn't possessed the land, but by faith he lays out that altar before the Lord and he begins to call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord begins to meet with Abram at Hebron. 
Remember, it's the place of association, fellowship as a couple even together. In Genesis chapter 17, this is still at Hebron. God begins to reveal to Abram his covenant promise with him. So we see it's the place of covenant that God made with Abram. Genesis 17 and verse 5, this is the significance of a change of a name. People wonder why the wife changes her name to take on the name of the husband. It's because of the covenant. That's why there's a change of name here in Genesis 17 and 5. Neither shall thy name anymore be called Abram. That means father. But Abram, I'm going to reveal something to you. Your name shall be called Abraham. Do you know what that means? You're going to be the father of multitudes. God's beginning to reveal His Word into the heart of a man that just steps out in faith. It all doesn't come at the one time. It's progressive in its revelation, but it requires obedience and people to be a participation in God's plan. For a father of many nations I have made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make thee the nations, I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Hebron's a very important place. It's significant for God's people, but I want you to see the spiritual significance. In Genesis chapter 45, there's an old man whose heart's broke. He's at Hebron. He believes his son, whom he loved, has, is dead and is gone and has been taken. But in Genesis 45 and verse 26, the brethren, his brethren come, his other sons come and say to him, Hey, Joseph is yet alive. And he is the governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed him not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, this was the place of revival. The spirit of his father began to revive. It's a place of revelation. It's a place of communion. It's a place of victory. It's a place of promise. It's a place of God's covenant. And the spirit of Jacob began to revive. There's a place that God wants to move His people into. It's like Hebron. It's not it physically, but it's a spiritual place in God. But Hebron was taken by the enemy. Significant places are often taken in the physical by the enemy. And it's significant for us. In Joshua chapter 14, we read there that at the time when the children of Israel had been brought into bondage and the slavery, that Hebron had been overtaken by, by a man called Arba. Arba was the father of the giants. He was the father of the Anakims. And so there's a resistance to Hebron. I want you to listen very carefully. There's a resistance to fellowship. There's a resistance of union. There's a resistance to the victory. There's a resistance to the plan and the purpose of God. There's a resistance to what God wants to do in your life. We don't wrestle against the flesh and the blood. It's principalities and partial. There's a resistance. And the giant had taken Hebron. It changed its name. Arba changed its name. It was known as Kerjath Arba because there was a giant there. His name was Arba, but he's the father of giants. He's the father of the Anakims. Friends, I want to tell you there's a resistance. There's a resistance to communion. There's a resistance to fellowship. I read an article just a few days ago. It's shocking, but it's true that something like four or five hundred churches closed over the past 
a couple of years at least than in the United States of America. They closed, but here's even worse still than that. They closed down, but here's the worst thing than that. In that same article, what they were saying was that because of the whole pandemic and everything that's happened and all this thing going on to Zoom and Boom and everything else, what they're going to do now is rather than have fellowship like this, where I meet with you, and whether you like it or not, but I'm here and you're here, and you have to look at me and I have to look at you, and the sweetness of that fellowship, what we're going to do is we're going to sell our buildings and we're all going to go online. Victory to the devil. There's a resistance to this. This isn't just a meeting on a Sunday morning or anywhere else that meets. This is the house of God. This is the spiritual gathering of the people of God. This is the best place to be in the planet, to be in the house of God, to gather with God's people, to meet together unto Him, to gather around the table, to pray one with another, to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. This world may not know what's happening. They might think we're crazy. But this morning, friends, this is the manifold wisdom of God revealed on this planet to principalities and powers, and the devil wants to close it all down. Here's a good idea. Sell up. You know where it's going here. We're going for a virtual church, but it's not church. Listen, friends, this morning it's so important where we're heading, where these Facebook characters and everything else are going to lead it into something of a virtual world. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. There's nothing like the people of God meeting together to sing the praises of God, whatever it looks like, and whatever opinion people have about it, and there's a million opinions out in the world, and there's a million opinions even in the church today of what it should be, but there's nothing like the gathering of God's people. So there's a resistance to this. This very gathering this morning, there's actually, you may not believe this, but I'm telling you it's the truth, there's a resistance to the meeting of God's people. It's a spiritual one, it's not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. There's powers, and this is not the hype it up in the sensationalism. There's reality of the powers of darkness that are against the meeting of God's people. They're against us coming. They're against us singing the songs of Zion. They're against us remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. They're against the body functioning as God had purposed it to function. And the body is a beautiful thing. God's body, Christ's body, the church of Jesus Christ is a wonderful thing. It's a mystery. But it's a beautiful thing. It's one of those revelations that's been lost. It's completely lost. I'm thankful that I was brought up and brought to church to every meeting. My mother's here, but she and my dad brought us to every meeting that was going. And I'm going to tell you, I didn't always love it. I've told you that before. Most of the time I didn't like it, but I'm so thankful today at the age of 48 that they did. They taught us the principles of what it is to come to the house of God. I mean, there was times I detested it. So I get it, young people, sometimes when you're saying, why am I here? Why did they make me do this? Why do they think this is a good idea? But one day you're going to say, thank you, Jesus, they did it. I tell you, we misbehaved. Trisha was the worst, but we misbehaved. We misbehaved. I mean, if my mom could just climb over six rows of chairs and get the hold of me sometimes, I know she would. If looks could kill, I'd be dead. But I'm thankful I was brought to the house of God. 
I'm thankful I was trained. You see, sometimes it may not be things that you like, but we're children and we need to be taught. And then we become spiritual children and we might be older as adults, but we still need to be taught. And the day that we become unteachable to say, I don't need the body, we've entered into the spirit of Antichrist. Because the Antichrist is against this. Well, I can't find a church to go. I want to tell you, friends, there's plenty of churches you can go to this morning. Especially in this country. We are up against a spiritual force against the fellowship of God's people. Oh, you think I'm going to the meeting? I want to tell you, friends, we looked at it in that Monday night Bible class, when you were born again, you were baptized into the body of Christ. That's what the Bible says. And if you got that revelation, you're not the whole body. You're only a part of it. I might be the wee finger. You might be the big toe. But I need your big toe as much as I need this wee finger. And so the enemy's against Hebron. He's against fellowship. He's against the joining together. But thank God for a man in the scripture called Caleb. Caleb, the Bible says, what did he do? He holy followed the Lord. Joshua 14, verse 11. Joshua 14, verse 11. This is what he said. He's an old man. He's about 84, 85 years old. And this is what he said after that wandering in that wilderness and all that death and all that unbelief. This is what he said. As yet, Joshua 14, 11, As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day when Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war both to go out and to come in. Now therefore give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day, for thou hearest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord is with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Joshua blessed him, gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron before was Kerjath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakims, and the land had rest from war. Sometimes, sisters, brothers, we need to drive out the enemy. We need to take authority against the powers of darkness. We need to go against what the flow of this age is. I want to tell you anything that supports, that supports the breaking down or the destruction of the assembly of God's people together, I'm against that. I don't care if I offend people, but I am against that. That is anti-Christ. That is against what God wants to do. Caleb wholly followed the Lord. He believed that possessing Hebron was significant in bringing back that relationship and that fellowship with the Lord. Now God has brought David to discontent, those in debt, those in distress, on the Hebron. And you know, Hebron, do you know what they said? That's another way you can say it. Hebron, Hebron, or Hebron. 
But you know what they said? They said to David that day, Behold, and this is important, we are thy bone. David, we are your bone and we are your flesh. I want you to listen very carefully. We are your bone and we are your flesh. It's the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. This is one of the most profound revelations that, that I believe that a man or a woman can get about what this really means, the bone of his bone and the flesh of his flesh. You know, it's a strange thing, but it was Adam, the first Adam, that got the revelation. And normally you wouldn't hear a preacher say, Adam got an amazing revelation. We just go straight to the garden and say, it's all because of Adam and Eve. But he got a revelation after God had given him Eve. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 21, I want you to see this this morning and then bring it in. <clears throat> in Genesis 2, 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs uh, closed and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and those two will become one flesh. What a revelation. She is mine and she belongs to me and I belong to her. She is off me. She is from my side. God has taken her out from me and this is the union of this wonderful fellowship. Paul brings the light of it in Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to see this this morning if you could. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul begins to reveal to us by the use of marriage. And this is about the, the best that I can do in marriage counseling this morning, but it's just found right here. It's in God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Paul pulls out the most wonderful revelation of what marriage is. Listen to me this morning, brothers and sisters. This world is against, and I just want to address this to the men, but this world is out to destroy manhood. This antichrist world, listen, men this morning, is out to destroy what it is to be a man. Just be a man. That sounds already, I can hear the liberals the Wokies or whatever else they're called, I can hear them already screaming and shouting that he's some type of chauvinist. I want to tell you, call me whatever you want to call me. But this antichrist liberal world is out to destroy what it is to be a man. I want to tell you, friends, that's why this is called this morning, Where are God's mighty men? They want to destroy it through this gender, this gender thing. They want to destroy who you are. They want to infiltrate your mind. We have a generation coming up. Somebody had shared a few weeks ago in a meeting with the ministers. They met two people on the, on the road, 13 years old, asking the question about the things of God. And then that 13-year-old says, I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to be a man or I'm going to be a woman. 
That is the spirit of Antichrist. I don't care what anyone said. That is a, a wicked spirit. I haven't decided yet. It's infiltrating every aspect of our society. But I want to tell you, friends, I wasn't great at biology, but I was at the birth of four sons. And when they came out, I knew that was a boy. But our young people are being infiltrated that men don't know that they're men and women don't know that they're women. They're being taught that they make that decision when they're older. That is an antichrist agenda. How can you say that? Because it's true. And God wants our young men to be men and our young women to be women according to the pattern of God's word. That's what works. That's the blessing. The greatest picture, the reason why the enemy's against marriage, you know the enemy's against every Christian marriage. He's against all marriage, but Christian marriages, he's against the Christian marriages. Do you know why? Because every time you see Patricia, Stephen walking in, Bran and Carol walking in, Hassan walking in. Do you know what that's a beautiful picture of? Of Christ and his church. You, you see why the devil hates marriage? Do you see why the devil hates marriage? He just doesn't dislike it. He hates marriage. Because every time you see a couple walking down that road, what you're looking at is a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. So if he can destroy what it is to be a man, destroy what it is to be a woman, completely destroy that image that God has made that you would look and say, my God, when those young couples come up and they walk down this aisle and he stands there and he turns around and every time you see it, that bride comes up and she's dressed and beautified and everything that happens in there, I'm not going there, I don't know what happens, but they always walk down looking great and smelling well, and he turns around, and the tears are running down his face. Do you know what that's a picture of? When that bride walks into the glories of heaven, and the son is standing waiting to present the bride to the father. The devil hates that. The devil hates that. In Ephesians chapter 5, then, Paul brings this beautiful picture. It remembers about Hebron. The couple, the fellowship, says, Submit yourselves, verse 21, Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Submit yourselves one. How can you submit yourself to one another if you're not in fellowship? How can you just say, I'm not going to be there? I know there's people who are listening to this this morning, and they would give anything to be here. It's either frailty or sickness that prevents them from getting here. But if they could be here, they'd be here. I understand that. But we're to submit ourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. Then it says in verse 22, I'm going to read it all. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. It's not going to be long, friends, until they ban this book or try to. Listen, they're going to try to ban this book in this country. You might say, not in the United Kingdom. But I want to tell you, friends, 20 years ago, you'd have never have thought to be same-sex marriage and abortion. Wives, submit yourselves. Make sure you get this context right. This isn't you standing with a stick saying, right? This is something so beautiful. 
in the sight of God because it's all in the context of, of love. Submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord for the husband... Would you read this next part because you're going to be an enemy for even believing this. The husband is the head of the wife. Does anybody believe that? Women, do you believe it? I'm not forcing you to say amen, women. I'm just saying, do you actually believe God's Word? What is it? The husband is the head of the wife. And this is what he says, even as Christ is the head of the church, and He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, man, do we believe this? Not an amen in the whole house. I want to say it again. Right, man, are you still awake? Man, do we believe this? He says, love your wives. Now, how do I, how do I love Nikki? How am I supposed to love Nikki? I'd be the first to say, oh God, make sure that I'm a man of this word and may I fulfill it in my life. He says, husbands, you love your wives. Hi. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, that's a love, isn't it? Do we any, any of us need help? Just ignore the women being here. Just us. Any of us need help? but I do want to love her. I do love her, but I do want to love her more. I'm not going all mushy. I'm just telling you this is a choice that we make. It's not just a mushy thing. It's a reality. Listen carefully. That we love, the, that we love our wives even as Christ loved the church. That's a love, isn't it? What a love that is. May God give us that love and give himself for him that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. We've got men today, they're so in love with themselves. They love themselves, but they don't love their wives. They'll fight over the mirror in the mornings. Not in our house. Two seconds, unless it's one of the younger ones at the mirror. I'm saying nothing else. We've got men today who want to look like women. We've got men today who want to wear makeup. We've got men today that want to get their eyebrows done. Friends, I'm telling you, this is, I don't know what's going on. I'm, maybe you're saying he's from a different world. I'm from this world. We've got men who are more interested in what they look like and what their wives look like. They actually nearly are wearing the same clothes. It's called unisex. They want to take away male and female so that all the clothes blend in together. Now, we look the same. You think I'm a way out there. I want to tell you, friends, it's spreading into every avenue of our lives. Men be men. Where are, where are God's mighty men? So men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet hateth his own flesh. Why? Because she's the, she's the bone of your bone and she's the flesh of your flesh. How can you hate your own flesh? But nourish and cherish that even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh. What does he say? And of his bones. 
You know, friends, here's the great revelation. When that Roman soldier looked up to Christ on the cross, and he lifted up that spear, and he plunged that spear into the side of Christ, the Bible says outflowed water and blood. Do you know what that was? That was for the birth of his bride. We are the bride of Christ. Then it says in verse 31, For this cause, this is all the marriage lessons all right here. For this cause shall a man leave his father and a mother. Men need to leave. My God, men need to leave. I love this woman here. She's the best mother in the whole world. But a man needs to leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife. Oh God, give us men. Give us men. Not men that hang on, you know, the old statement is to their mother's apron strings, but men, men that stand up and be men and be the head of their home. He'll be joined to his wife. The two will be flesh. This is the great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife, I want to finish on the wives because the men have got a tough time. And the wife, see, that she reverence her husband. I want to tell you something. I know this for a truth. There's not a person in this world knows the faults that I have, but that woman sitting over there knows them all. You've probably seen a few of them too, but she knows them all. And there's plenty. But I know for a truth that you'll never find that girl sitting anywhere around this town or anywhere across this land or on anybody's phone maligning her husband. Never. Oh, but you don't know what he's like. I'm going to tell you something. She knows exactly what I'm like. But you see, a good wife never pulls her house down. Always builds her house up. You see, she'll cover. She'll stand with. She'll trust. She'll support. She'll pray for her because she reverences her husband. Let me tell you, women, wives, listen, see us men, we're hard work. We're not easy. But I want to tell you something. Don't run around everywhere maligning your husband. Reverence your husband. Why? Because this is a beautiful type of Christ and his church. You see, the devil's against fellowship. Fellowship in a marriage, fellowship as a church, fellowship with the brethren. And Caleb took that place back. Can I tell you something? The devil's against every Christian marriage in this room, but I've got something even greater to say. But God's for it. God's for it. No matter the gaps, no matter the breaches, let me tell you something, build up the breaches. Put a covering around the marriage. Put a prayer 
cloth over the home and pray for God's protection because the devil's against your marriage. Where are the mighty men? These men that we're speaking of, I'm moving on now. I know it's very tense, but I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on for a moment. In verse 9 of 1 Chronicles chapter 11, I want you to see this. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 9. Ten minutes and I'll be finished. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 9. The Bible says, So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. These also are the chief of the mighty men who David had. And here is the secret to these mighty men and their mighty acts. I want you to see this. This is about Hebron, who strengthened themselves with him. Remember, this is a type of Christ. They strengthened themselves with him and his kingdom and with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The secret of these men and doing the great and mighty acts that they did and which we have read off this morning was that they drew their strength from David. It wasn't their own strength and it wasn't for their own purpose or for their own glory. I want you to hear this this morning. This is important. I'm coming to an end in a few moments. But they strengthened themselves with him and his kingdom. The secret for moving in with God and moving out with God was to draw that strength that came from David. David was to be increased. If Christ, I believe someone prayed it this morning in the prayer meeting, but that Christ would increase and that we would decrease is actually the secret of the power of God coming into this house this morning. It's not that we increase, but it is Christ that increases and that we, in, and that we decrease. And so the strength of God, we come into that. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.16 that He would grant unto you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Let me encourage everyone this morning as we're moving through this, this morning that in the Scripture, we see that these people are moved from a cave to this place, Hebron. It was in that place that these men withdrew of the strength of David in order that they would go out and do these mighty acts for God. It was a place of fellowship. Our strength cannot come from ourselves. It cannot come from us generating anything of the physical. Our strength comes holy from the Lord. That happens not when we increase, but when He increases and we decrease. The entire purpose was for them and His kingdom, that is Christ's kingdom, to be extended and Christ to be glorified. Here's these three men. I want you to see them this morning as we're closing. Adino, Eleazar, and Shammah. I'm asking the question as we come to a close this morning, where are God's mighty men or where are God's mighty women today? In God's kingdom, I believe this, I just want to picture, present this picture to you this morning. There is a gallery. You know, if you go across any of the nations of the world, and we've been maybe to visit some of those palaces or great places of government, when you walk into the hallways, what you'll often find 
Hanging on those hallways are portraits of great men and women who have done great exploits for this nation. You see them dressed in all their garb and they put up those art galleries and everyone walks in and says, wow, who is this? And they read about this great general or this great duke or someone done something and they hang those on the walls as portraits of men who have done great things for the nation. But I want to tell you, friends, this morning, God has a gallery And it's found in word form in Hebrews chapter 11. And when you walk into that gallery, you're going to find men and women of faith. And God paints their picture, not with a paintbrush, but with the Word of God. And why He does it in word form and not picture form is because faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's Word. I have no interest in art galleries. I think they're the most boring places in this world. I would never go to an art gallery. That's like, I mean, that is the worst place. Sorry if you're into art, but I mean, I read a story a few weeks ago. I mean, I've still been sniggering about it the whole... I want to meet this man, but there's this painting over in Russia, and there's one of those stupid ones, well, they're all stupid, but it was a painting of 750,000 pounds worth. It was three people, no like those stick men, but they weren't stick men, they were, they were more like me, a bit rotund, and they were round bodies, and they had a, a head, and there were three of them, but they had no face. And in the middle of the night, the security guard was bored. Do you know what he did? He drew eyes! On the, on the painting. I want to meet this man. He said it was a moment of madness. He's my type of guy. And the thing was rubbish looking. But let me tell you something this morning. God has a gallery. I want, I want to finish with this this morning. But this got into my heart and into my bones. And I pray that something of it would get into us this morning. Here's three men. Adino, Eleazar, and Shammah. And God's great gallery are people of the past that have done great things for God. They were men and women of faith. They were God's mighty men. They were God's mighty women. And they rose up often against the odds and in tribulation and trial, but they would do exploits for the Lord. It's because of their love for David, these men would go out. They were motivated because of their passion for David. That's why they went out. Not for themselves, not for their name, not for their ministry, but for Jesus Christ alone. And these men would go out and they had nothing. Everything was against them, but they believed the Lord. And this great hallway of faith, Now we are now marching through with a great cloud of witnesses will one day come to an end when faith gives way to sight and we'll see the greatest picture a man can see, the Lamb of God on the throne. These walls, as you walk through them, you'll see all these great men and women of the past. We We get it in word form. But if you walk down this hallway with me for a moment, you'll find men and women hanging on that wall. Jesus, through the Word, reveals to us something about their picture, something about their life. And so you'd stop at the painting there. You see him. You see old Noah. I'm sure there's a boat painted for us. I'm sure there's that door which is Christ. I'm sure there's that man that found grace in the sight of God. And by faith, he built an ark for the saving of his family. You move on down and you'll find men like Abraham. I don't know which painting you would see, but I believe it would be that day when he was on Mount Moriah and his son was laid across an altar and he had a knife in his hand and there's a ram in the thicket and there's God calling out, Do no harm to the lad! I'll provide a lamb! 
You walk on down, you find Sarah. But I believe, this is just my thought, according to the Word of God, I think you'd see a picture of Sarah. Here's a 90-year-old woman holding a little baby in her arms. I'm sure all the neighbors were saying, is that the grandson? No, this is my son. God has made my womb fruitful. We haven't staggered at His promise. And we see a picture of Sarah. You walk down, you'll find Moses. You'll find the great men of faith right through all the ages. And Esther, all of them painted on the wall. You'll find Adino. You'll find Eliezer. And you'll find Shammah. What do these men do? Look at Adino for a moment. Here he is. I think you see him standing in that picture on that hallway of faith. Listen. And there he has a spear in his hand. I would paint it this way. I'm no artist. But I would paint 800 bodies all lying around him. And the man of God standing with a spear in his hand because by faith he believed God. And then you'd move on and you'd find Eleazar. The Bible tells us that when there was a great battle and Israel had, had, had gone away, no, the Bible says that he rose up until his hand was weary, he cleaved to that old sword. I'd paint the picture of Eleazar with that sword in his hand. He might be tired. He might be weary. He might be against it. But he never departed from the Word of God. And God wrought a mighty victory that day. Friends, hold on to the sword. Never give up on the Word of God. Or perhaps there's Shammah. You come to his picture. Look at Shammah in verse 11. It says that then that day in that ground full of lentils. You know, I got a little picture the other day to send through from Nepal just to encourage you this morning. Remember those who went? Remember that time we went up into that mountain? Those Hindus, we had that meeting and there was a little field with lentils. It was a little field with lentils and there was a wee church up there. We're looking for a bit of land. And by the grace of God, as a few years ago, this church was able to send out that finance to purchase that land. And the picture comes through on the lentil patch. There's a wee building built to the glory of God. Listen this morning, because someone defended, someone stood up, someone believed God, someone said, yes, God, I'm going to believe. Where are the great mighty men of God today? As you go through all of history, friends, and you walk through, and you walk down God's great gallery, you'll see picture after picture of men and women and missionaries that went out from this land and across the lands of the world to believe God and do exploits for God. And their paintings are hanging on God's great gallery. What a gallery this is. They've left a legacy. That legacy means this. Legacy means making an impact that will last long after you die. Let me ask you this question. 3,000 years later, 3,000 years later, what is this, the 20th of February? 20th of February. I even forget the year. It's 2022. The 20th of February, 2022. 3,000 years later, I'm still talking about Adino and Shama and Eleazar. Why? Because they left a legacy. Will you leave a legacy beyond your death? We have the Wesleys, the Roberts, the Carmichaels. We Helen Rose of Fear that visit us. Remember when she came? A precious wee missionary. We still talk about her. We read their books. My prayer for us and our fellowship is this, that as a people, as a fellowship, we leave a legacy 
as the Lord tarries long after we're gone. What will you leave your kids? What will you leave your grandkids? What will you leave your neighbors? What will you leave your work colleagues? What will we leave Balna Hinch? What will we leave Kilkeel? What will we leave Annalong? What will we leave Newcastle? What will we leave Belfast or Newton North? What will we leave behind us? Will it be a legacy that people say they made a difference? They pointed a soul to Jesus. It was these men, absolute love for David was their chief motivating factor. It was their loyalty to this man that was nothing but to be admired. It was their devotion that displayed in their willingness to die for their master. Their courage in battle against unnumbered foes and possible odds was remarkable. It was these individual acts that God was provoked to move on their behalf and give them great victories. Friends, we serve a God not of the possible, but the impossible. It was an affection for David that they would unite in purpose that seen them achieve the impossible. Let me ask you this question. I am closing. They have left a legacy. They have left a legacy. I want to ask you this question. What legacy will you leave? And by God's grace, if you want to leave one, will you rise up in faith today to say, God, I'm going to live for you against unnumbered foes. That's what we're against, but praise the Lord, he's given us the victory. What legacy will we leave? Let's stand together this morning. Thank you, Jesus.